to have a tornado hit your place and then to have so many people come out and help you clean up the mess. Total strangers, some people that you know but you know haven't spent a lot of time with. And it just really restores your faith in people. Yeah, I mean, that, that side of it was pretty heartwarming. The aftermath of this tornado that struck on Saturday between Carstairs and Didsbury in Mountain View County. But there was quite a mess to respond to. Uh, the images of the storm and the tornado itself that have surfaced are quite something. Like, it was pretty obvious based on some of the damage and some of the images uh, that this was a big tornado. We do get tornadoes in Edmonton, but uh, not quite or not often like this. You have to go back to 1987 and that tornado that left a trail of destruction in Edmonton uh, to find one this powerful. In fact, this may be one of only three tornadoes in Alberta's history uh, to reach the level of EF4. And so that's the information that we've got out today is a closer analysis of this tornado that struck and, and being able to classify this on, on that on that scale, the enhanced Vegeta scale, as it's known. So joining us to talk a bit more about how we determine all of this, what this all means and why it matters uh, to keep in track this information. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Connell Miller, a wind impacts researcher with the Northern Tornadoes Project at Western University. Much more at uwo.ca slash NTP. Connell, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the uh, EF, the Enhanced Fujita Scale. I guess it's known. That's how we measure the, the strength uh, of tornadoes. This was an EF4, as we now understand it. What does that mean, first of all? Yeah, that's correct. So the Enhanced Fujita Scale is used because... We don't have wind measuring tools all across Canada that are going to be able to be directly hit by tornadoes, which can be quite small, right? So when we rate tornadoes, we rate it based off the damage that's done. And then an engineer like myself uh, comes out to an event, takes a look at the damage that's done and works backwards to figure out what wind speed would have caused that event. Uh, now, any of four events, uh, such as the one uh, that happened in the Didsbury Carstairs area, um, is a uh, much higher on the scale. Uh, it's, it's what we call a, a violent uh, tornado. In terms of Canada's tornado climatology, only five, maybe even less percent of tornadoes in Canada reach that level of severity. So uh, quite a strong tornado. And as you said earlier, the last one that happened in uh, Alberta was 1987 Edmonton tornado. Right. And in terms of measuring the impact, you know, when something like that passes through an urban area where, you know, you had a number of deaths, number of people injured, a lot of homes destroyed, maybe it's easier to do those kinds of, of impact measurements when a tornado hits a more of a rural area. What kind of challenges does that pose? Sure. Um, yeah. So when it, when it hits in rural area, one of the things we use for the EF scale is damage indicators, so prescribed things such as houses, trees, um, mobile homes, that sort of thing that allows us to do this wind analysis. Uh, in rural areas, it, it can be tougher um, because uh, Canada does have such low population density, and if it doesn't hit any of those things that we traditionally rated on the EF scale, it can be hard uh, to rate these events. Now, uh, for this event specifically, it did do some structural damage uh, to uh, multiple homes uh, throughout the area. So there was uh, some information that we were able to use to rate this event specifically. Right, yeah, we, I think we had th there were three that were totally destroyed and, and maybe another four that, for all intents and purposes, are, are uninhabitable at this point. And so, yeah, yeah. The, the devastation was, was pretty apparent there. 
Mm-hmm. What does it tell us about uh, what kind of winds would we be talking about with an EF4 tornado? Sure. Uh, so uh, EF4 tornado, um, this this is rated on the lower end of the EF uh, of EF4 uh, range, but it's still 275 uh, kilometers an hour, which is incredible winds uh, to be experiencing, right? Uh, obviously enough to completely destroy homes at, at this point. Um, in uh, one of the farms, there was a combine that had been lofted uh, into the air, and those things weigh 10,000 kilograms, right? Um, so if you think about it, that's a, a ton of force that has to be acting on that to pick that up and throw it even any considerable distance. So once you start getting to the EF4, EF5 range, you're talking about near-apocalyptic levels of destruction at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to think. I think there was just the one minor injury, which is yeah. quite something. Um, this, this event, and I've said this a few times today, is extremely, extremely lucky, and it's a miracle that no one was injured more seriously than they were or or uh, there was no fatalities. Yeah. When we see events in the EF4, EF5 range, it's almost an expectation that if it goes through any sort of structural uh, damage or destroys any sort of homes, that there will be some fatalities uh, in these events. But luckily, the warnings got out in time. Uh, people that were in vulnerable positions managed to find shelter in, in places that were appropriate. Uh, and I, if you think about it, if this tornado had traveled three kilometers south through the town of Carstairs or a kilometer north where there is a mobile trailer park, like we would be having a much sadder conversation today. Oh, God, I think. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, the destruction also gives us an indication of the path that you alluded to, you know, in terms of when it touched down, how long it stayed down. And some of the images kind of almost give us an idea of how wide this might have been or how wide the path might have been anyway. Are we able to, to uh, you know, deduce those two numbers? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, one of the tools that we use uh, at the Northern Genos Project is the use of drones uh, to be able to send them up into the air, get a sense of where the path started, where the path ended, where it traveled, as well as the width of the event. So from that, uh, we were able to tell that the tornado traveled for approximately 15 to 16 kilometers uh, and had an approximate width of 620 meters. Now, the, the length and the width of the event don't necessarily correlate to the intensity of the event. Um, there was a, a tornado last year here in the Ontario region just north of Belleville that traveled for 55 kilometers and was over a kilometer wide, but we only rated that in EF2 because the intensity wasn't as strong as this event. So it doesn't necessarily tell you anything uh, in terms of uh, the intensity based off the width, but uh, it is uh, certainly something that we want to grab as part of our data gathering process. I'm curious too, once we, I mean, we, we sort of understand, you know, the conditions that can spawn tornadoes and those storm conditions happening where, you know, tornadoes become a possibility. But once tornadoes start to form, is it kind of a crapshoot in terms of, you know, the level of severity or do, do certain conditions maybe make it more likely that a tornado of that size or magnitude could be spawned? Um, so tornadoes are incredibly variable. Um, so there is a sense of it is, is very hard to predict uh, the overall severity of these events and uh, even predicting whether an event is going to happen is a challenge. Um, that being said, uh, supercell thunderstorms are characteristic of, of violent tornadoes. Uh, so what that means is these type of 
thunderstorms with extreme wind shear, extreme atmospheric instability, those are the ones that you would expect to produce stronger tornadoes. And that is what we saw in the Didsbury Carstairs area on July 1st. I think it just happened so quickly, and I think that's what it seemed like on Saturday, That the, you know, and just even the narrow band of this storm, too. I mean, uh, you know, areas not too far off almost really didn't notice anything, but at all, you know, both of those factors, how quickly it formed, how narrow this, this you know, this storm band seemed to be, it was, yeah, it was quite something. Yeah, both, both of those things that you're talking about, a, a narrow band of damage um, is, is very characteristic of tornadoes, and it's one of the challenges of uh, both... Uh, uh, predicting them as well as uh, detecting the damage uh, after they've occurred. And why is it important then, you know, to to better understand this after the fact, to be able to go back and categorize these storms, to try to keep track of, you know, the the scale of damage, how one tornado might compare to another, I mean, which sort of speaks to the work that that you do at the uh, NTP. Yeah, absolutely. So we want to try to. Uh, gather as much data as possible about tornadoes that occur in Canada every year uh, for for two main reasons. Uh, Number one, to uh, develop Canada's true tornado climatology. And what that means is being able to uh, give accurate um, measurements of uh, averages for uh, tornadoes per uh, year in certain provinces, as well as even going down more granular than that into certain areas being like, okay, if you live in this area, this is your risk of experiencing a tornado per year. The other aspect we're looking at, too, is to help improve models for predicting tornadoes. So if we know for sure that this specific thunderstorm produced this specific tornado, we can then use that to improve our models in the future for detection and warning of thunderstorms and, and um, being able to warn people, hopefully, uh, even more in advance that a severe tornado may be approaching. Really fascinating stuff. Much more is mentioned, uwo.ca slash NTP. Connell Miller, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the insight. Uh, appreciate the talk. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that's Dr. Con- uh, Dr. Connell Miller, uh, Wind Impacts Researcher with the Northern Tornadoes Project at Western University. And yeah, I think at some level we're all kind of fascinated with tornadoes. You know, there's a reason why the movie Twister was such a big hit. And yeah, we do get them here. And, and as we've seen, they can be pretty devastating. You know, I was a kid in Edmonton in 1987, and I remember that day very well. I remember just how green and ominous the sky looked that day. Like, it was pretty weird, and it was pretty crazy. And so once you've kind of been through that or experienced uh, that, you, you don't forget it. And I'm sure, you know, people impacted by what happened uh, over the weekend won't forget it either. I think there were 26 people killed. Um, I might have that number wrong, but uh, in Edmonton in 1987, it was somewhere around there. Like the death toll was pretty staggering when you think about the impact of tornadoes in this country and just, uh, you know, that whole trail of devastation. So this one on Saturday could have been a lot worse. And as our guest pointed out, if it had gone a little bit further south or north, it definitely would have been a lot worse. So as it was from all of that, we, we get one minor injury. So very, very fortunate. But still, you know, that's a pretty big impact on a lot of families' lives here. Three homes destroyed, four left uninhabitable, another five were damaged. And even though the homes or the land that wasn't damaged, I got a text from someone here says, our son-in-law has a field that was close to the tornado. It's now left uh, them with debris all over, 320 acres going to be quite a problem figuring out how to deal with that. And no kidding, what kind of a claim is that? Your home's not damaged. Nothing, nothing's really damaged, per se. 
you got a huge mess. And when you're farming, that's a problem. So just another way in which that, you know, that has some impact. Uh, so, yeah, as best they can tell, this was an EF4 tornado uh, with wind speed as much as 275 kilometers per hour. They believe the uh, path length of the tornado was 15 kilometers, just over 15 kilometers, and about 620 meters wide. And like I say, if you've seen some of the images, uh, none of that is going to seem surprising. It looked really, really bad. So we, we understand it a little bit better now. But still, I mean, predicting all of this is really, really difficult. And even once you get a situation where, okay, you know, we've got a tornado watch, maybe a tornado warning, what are you going to get? Are you going to get something like this, an EF4? Are you going to get uh, an EF2? Or, you know, there's, there's a lot of randomness to this all which makes the prediction game the protection game when it comes to uh, trying to, to safeguard lives and, and property. It's, it's really, really difficult. So we all know, more or less, that, that sugar is not good for us, that we want to try to reduce the amount of sugar we consume. Now, for a lot of people, one way to reduce sugar consumption is to replace the sugar with something that still has a sweetness to it. Enter artificial sweeteners. I think it was about 40 years ago now uh, that uh, Diet Coke first appeared and uh, diet sodas became really popular and still are to this day. But what do we need to know about the, the stuff that we're ingesting to replace the sugar? Right, so we know that artificial sweeteners don't have the same kind of uh, problems or risks as sugar. But what about their own risks or problems? What do we know about uh, these substances? Now, one of them in particular has been back in the spotlight, aspartame. And this has come up at times over the years. Uh, should we be worried about artificial sweeteners? Are they bad for us in other ways? So this has come up again in terms of the question of a possible cancer link. So it's an organization called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the IARC. And so what's been reported in recent days is that the IARC is going to reclassify aspartame as a possible carcinogen. And so that makes a lot of people nervous. Like, yes, that can of uh, Diet Coke doesn't have uh, the calories or the sugar that, that the actual Coke has. But is it concerning for a different reason? So what do we need to know about this reclassification? What does the data actually tell us here? How much of a risk is there? How concerned should consumers be? As uh, a great overview of all of this, a piece at uh, MontrealGazette.com uh, the other day. Dr. Christopher Labas is a cardiologist with a degree in epidemiology. He's a Montreal physician and co-host of the Body of Evidence podcast, bodyofevidence.ca. Dr. Labas, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, so it feels like we've been here before. So I don't know what, what seems to be new this time around, these latest concerns around aspartame. Well, I don't think anything is really new, to be honest with you. I mean, and, and part of this is we really have to understand how IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, how they actually operate. And their, their mandate, they are a subcommittee of the uh, World Health Organization. Their job is to issue monographs, basically these position statements summarizing the evidence on different products. And so they have a list of products that they review and they are, it appears based on, you know, what was leaked that come mid July, 
they are going to issue a monograph on aspartame. So what they've presumably done, and we'll see when the actual paper is published, is that they looked over all the evidence of the past 40 years and have come to a conclusion that aspartame is possibly carcinogenic. And that's really important because I think a lot of people don't really understand what their classification system actually means and what the word possibly carcinogenic actually means because I don't think it means what a lot of people think it means. Yeah, and this is all pretty important in understanding this because they've got a grading system. So top would be group one, things that we know are carcinogenic. And then once you get into group two, well, even within group two, there's some different categories. Exactly. So group one is definitely carcinogenic, as you said. Group 2A is probably carcinogenic. Group 2B is possibly carcinogenic. And then there's even a group 3 that is unclassifiable. And there's even a group 4, which is not carcinogenic. And interestingly enough, there is nothing in group 4. So no IARC review has ever determined that something is not carcinogenic, except for one brief period of time when they reviewed calprolactam, which is a um, synthetic nylon substance that is used in the manufacturing of clothing that was briefly designated not carcinogenic before it was reclassified into group 3. So the, the, the other point to remember is that what IARC does is that they specifically review products that they themselves believe to be carcinogenic and they give them these designations. But the 2B classification, which is what it appears aspartame is going to be listed under, the term possibly carcinogenic basically just means that there is some data, often not human data, maybe data from animal studies or from you know um, um, petri dishes, so basically just lab data, suggesting potentially that there could be a link, but that the data is inconsistent and, and non-conclusive. And 2B, that designation, is such a weak designation that there's a lot of stuff in there that is, you know, frankly, nonsense. I mean, they've declared aloe vera possibly carcinogenic in group 2B based on, you know, some basic science study. So it's like a lot, they have declared many, many things as possible carcinogens. Doing shift work is actually listed in 2A. Working as a barber is listed as a 2A carcinogen. So mm-hmm. the, the problem with the IR classification is that they will classify a lot of stuff as either possibly or probably carcinogenic based on very, very low levels of evidence. And when you actually look at all the things that they've leveled as, as carcinogens, you start to realize, you know, some of the absurdity there, and that kind of undercuts some of their argument, because if you're going to declare aloe vera as a possible carcinogen, well, now all of a sudden I'm much less worried about aspartame if you're sort of lumping those two in together. Yeah, that seems to be the risk here. Maybe they take the approach that let's just err on the safe side, and if people can then minimize their exposure to aspartame or aloe vera or pickled vegetables, then okay, yeah. then then fine. But if people don't take all of this seriously, that, that seems like a, a bigger problem. Right. And I mean, some of the stuff they designate as carcinogens are valid, like, you know, cigarette smoke, you know, UV radiation from the sun, alcohol, right? Those are, those are valid things. But then they go and they declare um, birth control pills as a group one carcinogen. So they even gave a higher designation to birth control pills. And that's because birth control pills can contain estrogen. Estrogen can increase the risk of breast cancer. So they're like, well, that, that has to be listed as a carcinogen because... There's this very clear cancer link there. And in their mind, like in their internal logic, what they've said makes sense because they're not making a commentary about whether something is dangerous or about whether people need to be worried. They're just saying there is a clear link between estrogen and breast cancer and there's estrogen and birth control pills, you know, QED. Um, 
and I, I, what's often problematic is that there doesn't seem to be an appreciation for how the public is going to respond to these headlines because it is fear-inducing. When you tell people artificial sweeteners are a possible carcinogen, aspartame is being listed as a possible carcinogen, people are going to get worried and they don't understand that just because IARC declares something a carcinogen doesn't actually mean it's dangerous because you know millions of women take birth control pills every day. They don't develop breast cancer. Um, Tamoxifen, which is another group one carcinogen, according to IARC, that's a breast cancer treatment, right? That's obviously good for you and that is decreasing the risk of you dying of breast cancer. And yet it's listed as a carcinogen because there is a rare side effect where it can react with the estrogen receptors on the uterus and slightly increase the risk of uterine cancer in postmenopausal women. But, you know, that's such a small, small risk that most people clinically don't consider it significant. And yet that's not how they're thinking and that's not the assessment they're making so they're looking at the hazard of something not the risk of something and that's an important distinction that is often not communicated when this stuff goes out to the public right and that's an important point what what seems to be the the particular concern with aspartame what does it contain or what is the the possible mechanism that that could exist there well, no one knows, and that's part of the problem. Like, when, whenever you ask somebody that, the explanation becomes very, very hand-wavy, and it's, you know, often based on giving massive doses of these to animals and a very, very inconsistent data in humans. So they'll, po- they'll point to one sort of... Um, there was one cohort study that was done from France, but the problem with these types of things is that when you do these types of studies, you're not doing a randomized trial. You're not taking a bunch of people giving half of them aspartame and half of them placebo, or half of them sugar, which would be the more relevant comparison, right? Because... That's why people consume this stuff, because they're trying to substitute out sugar. They're not doing that. They're basically just asking people about their diet and finding that people who drink a lot of diet soft drinks, you know, have more health problems. We're like, okay, but that might also be because of reverse causation. Maybe the people who have started to develop health problems have suddenly become health conscious, and now they've switched from regular soda to diet soda. You know, that's not impossible. So that's why there is such equivocation on these things, because we don't have good studies to assess this, because they would be very difficult to do. Like, imagine the logistical difficulties involved in getting 10,000 people, randomizing them to, you know, Diet Coke versus regular Coke, and then following them for 20 years to see what the outcome would be. That would be really hard, even assuming people don't slip and, you know, buy, you know, the uh, buy the wrong type of soda at the grocery store. So it's really hard to assess these things. And in the in the presence of doubt, that's where you can have confusion. And that's what we have now. We have confusion and, frankly, a little bit of fear-mongering, too, making a claim that this is carcinogenic when the evidence is really, really shaky that it actually might be. Right. And then there's the other side of risk. So even with things that we know are carcinogenic, you know, a Friday night cigar represents a different risk than a pack-a-day smoker. A few minutes in the sun every day is a, a different kind of risk than hours a day. In the sun, so that that becomes the other question here is like, what kind of, of level are we talking about that's potentially anyway dangerous? Well, right, and that's that is a good point, and that too has some uncertainty to it. But there was one assessment um, done um, in the U.S. where they said, okay, well, what happens? What would happen if everybody who drank soda switched to diet soda? If you substituted all that sugar for artificial sweeteners, how much artificial sweeteners would you have to drink to get? a potentially dangerous level of these substances in your blood. And it turns out that it works out to about somewhere between 12 and 36 cans of diet soft drinks per day. So you would have to consume a very, very high amount of this stuff, even to get to a point where it's potentially dangerous. And that's another issue that is often 
overlooked is that when people try to point to harm, they're looking at sort of a mouse study where you gave massive amounts of this to a mouse and, you know, found potentially some health problems down the road. First of all, unclear that what's true in a mouse is going to be true in humans. I mean, think about it. Chocolate is toxic to dogs and not toxic to humans. So, you know, toxicities do not preserve themselves across species. So it's a little bit dubious to infer anything from mouse or rat research, but whatever. But even if you're willing to accept that, you would have to consume very, very high doses. And listen, there's nothing particularly healthy about diet soft drinks, right? Um, If you have a choice between a regular soda and a diet soda, choose water. That is the better option. But, you know, if you enjoy drinking this stuff, if you like the sweet taste, then this is going to be an issue. I don't think there's really much of a harm to this stuff. You're probably better off drinking this than a regular soda, which has a lot of sugar. And we are very, very certain that consuming a lot of sugar is bad for you. So if that's the way that you're going to consume less sugar, sure. Although better off if you would just cut the sugar out entirely rather than trying to substitute it with with something else. Yeah, great point. Uh, As I mentioned, your latest column on this, it's up at montrealgazette.com and uh, much more at bodyofevidence.ca. Christopher Labos, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. My pleasure. You take care. You as well. All the best. Dr. Christopher Labos, cardiologist with a degree in epidemiology, host of the uh, co-host of the Body of Evidence podcast and his latest column up at uh, MontrealGazette.com. I want to get the latest on what's happening in B.C. We've got uh, a pretty large strike happening affecting ports in the lower mainland in BC. And that, as you would imagine, is having and will have some severe disruption when it comes to the Canadian economy. Uh, Stuff coming and going from these ports is pretty important. And things are not looking good at the moment. Global's Aaron Ubels has the latest. The talks for the more than 7,400 workers continued into Monday and now appear to have hit an impasse. There are concerns the more it drags on, the economic impacts could be felt in provinces across the country, meaning the cost of living and the price of groceries could spike beyond the already sky-high costs that we're seeing. Matt Holmes with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce says the government needs to step up and make a deal happen, and fast. Yeah, we're at that point already. Uh, we need to see the government take this seriously. It's $800 million a, week, a day. Uh, you know, if we, if we lose a week, we've already lost three days here. If we get to a week, that's $5.5 billion. The BC Maritime Employers Association says the IWU's proposals for compensation are well outside the established norm of union settlements in Canada. For example, in 2022, the average salary of a longshore worker in BC was $136,000 a year. And with still no deal reached, workers remain on strike though the goal here for both parties seems to be reaching a fair deal as soon as they can. Aaron Ubels, Global News. Okay, so concern is mentioned about the impact this can have and will have and calls on the federal government to to intervene here so as to minimize the impact on the Canadian economy. It comes at a pretty bad time. You know, with everything we've been dealing with, uh, with inflation and just as we're trying to get that under control, this could have a significant impact. So joining us to talk more about how serious the impact could be, what kind of steps are going to be necessary to deal with this. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Andrew Wynn-Williams, Divisional Vice President for BC with Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Andrew, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. I'm glad to join you. So what's the level of concern here about this whole situation from your perspective, first of all? It's very serious. 
from our perspective, when we look at this, and, and I'm the divisional vice president who worked across actually all three provinces, BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, what we see is that the impact on manufacturing is, is twofold. One is the supply chain coming in, and two is the goods going out. And so when you look at what we export as a nation to places other than the U.S., one out of every, every three dollars of those exports go out of those West Coast ports. Uh, and so for that's one element that's a significant challenge. And then the other is, is the supply chain in. So if you are uh, a manufacturer in uh, Calgary that uh, is looking at uh, you have deadlines to meet, you're expecting steel or you're expecting some other kind of product as part of your supply chain to come into Calgary uh, before you can move it on, you probably have contracts to meet, you will have penalty clauses, you're already going to start missing those, you're already going to be uh, having challenges. And that's then going to cascade in the sense that if you are a heavy equipment manufacturer in Edmonton, and you rely on components made by that steel fabricator in Calgary, and they're not getting their steel, then they're not getting it to you. You're not going to be able to meet your contracts. You're going to start looking at alternate suppliers. So you're going to be looking for, you know, places outside of Canada. It just, the the consequences are far-reaching and long-term. Yeah, they are, right through the entire manufacturing sector, as you mentioned. So do we have any idea of what kind of cost this, this represents, at least even on a daily basis? I mean, it sounds like it's tens or hundreds of, of millions of dollars, potentially. Yeah, it's going to reach into the hundreds of millions of dollars pretty quickly. Um, we don't have an exact estimate on a, on a sort of a day-by-day basis as far as the manufacturing sector goes. But uh, um, the, you know, the, the Canadian chamber had that sort of overall economic number they used in a report that you just had and that's uh, you know that's a frightening number right well, it is. And, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you know, the, this labor dispute has nothing to do with, with your members, has nothing to do with manufacturers. But now, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're caught up in, in the midst of all of this. That's, that's exactly right. So, although we believe in the collective bargaining process, there's far more than just the two key parties involved in this. This is the entire Canadian economy that is being held hostage to this negotiation. And... We think the federal government needs to act. Negotiations could have taken place on this months ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, there was, waiting until the last second is, uh, you know, and, and trying to back the parties into a corner. That shows that they, you know, they're concerned about whether negotiations are the right solution either as well. So I really think the federal government needs to act here uh, and not just. On this particular case, from our perspective, we think that this ongoing cycle of port strikes, because we had one in Montreal not too long ago, and you know that that deal they reached in Montreal or the, the negotiated deal, mediated deal in Montreal, that one runs out on December 31st. So we're just going to go through this again on the other side of the country. We think there needs to be some steps taken to prevent this from happening in the future. We think the ports need to be an essential service. Right, so that would prevent this sort of thing from happening because, you know, even if these things last a, a few days, I mean, if this keeps happening, you know, there, there's some longer-term consequences to all of this, right? Well, exactly. So 
manufacturing in Canada is 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 a, is a fairly high cost proposition. That's not a complaint. It's just you know we have we pay good wages. We have you know a strong environmental issue controls. All those kinds of things contribute to costs that other jurisdictions don't necessarily have. And so for us. Um, you know, we need to make sure we do a really good job on all the other elements that allow us to manufacture here. And having key parts of our infrastructure suddenly become out of commission because of a strike, that, that puts a level of uncertainty that some manufacturers aren't going to want to keep dealing with. They're going to want to perhaps move someplace else uh, where, you know, it, if they, you know, they may have to may get more certainty on ports part on ports and may cost them less uh, and so it's a lot of the impacts aren't going to be instant right so it's not going to be ooh I can't get my steel today they're going to look at it and say you know what maybe I should be operating someplace else because there's more security in terms of my supply well, in terms of this situation, I mean, things do seem at an impasse. Uh, the federal government has indicated that, you know, they're closely monitoring the situation. They recognize the seriousness of the situation. But at this point, it doesn't seem like action is imminent on Ottawa's part. I mean, what's what's the timeline here in terms of, you know, when the federal government might need to step in? Or are we already there? We're already there. I think the federal government should be taking a much more active role in this. I think they need to be doing everything in their power to, to resolve this issue. We'll see what happens and, in the days ahead. Yeah. Close, and watching closely is an action. Well, exactly. Andrew, appreciate your input on this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Andrew Wynn-Williams, Divisional Vice President with the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. CME-MEC.ca is their website. Uh, so they want the federal government to get involved here, both in terms of dealing with this current situation. You know, perhaps as much as $500 million a day being disrupted by this strike. But also to look longer term, we can't just keep going through this. Uh, these ports, you know, and, and they also point out rail lines, other transportation infrastructure. Uh, you know, we need some kind of a different approach here so that these don't become targets, uh, so that these don't get caught up in these labor disputes and the economy isn't held hostage by all of this. As he says, I mean, even if you get a situation that lasts a few days, if it's going to happen again in a few months and then a few months after that, you know, that's going to undermine investor confidence in Canada. That's going to lead to reduced business investments, lower economic growth. There's a whole domino effect from it all. Uh, but as we saw last week, the government's attempts at uh, bringing in the Online News Act are, are already running into problems. This is the bill previously known as C-18. The idea was that in order to help improve the state of the media, journalism in this country, and given that you know one of the big financial impacts on journalism has been the exodus of advertising to platforms like Facebook and Google, and given that those platforms do provide news content, the idea being that uh, the government was going to force those companies, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram and Google, to compensate news organizations for linking to their content. But as these companies very quickly realized, uh, they have the option. They have the option of just not linking to that content in the first place. And both Google and Meta have announced that that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to remove Canadian news from their platforms. So at the moment, this is a huge mess. 
uh, that this is not good for news organizations. This is not good for news consumers. So already the Online News Act looks like, just as mentioned, a big mess. Is there a way out of this? Is there maybe a compromise here? Our next guest thinks there is. Joining us to talk about the situation we find ourselves in, maybe how we uh, extract ourselves from it. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, the Honorable Conrad von Fickenstein, uh, former CRT uh, chair of the CRTC, a consultant on communications, competition and trade issues, also a senior fellow with the uh, C.D. Howe Institute. Mr. von Fickenstein, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. We appreciate your your input on all of this. How serious a problem is it right now, given the fact that this legislation has passed, that these two companies have already made their position quite clear? Well, obviously, everybody is looking for a compromise. Nobody likes the idea of Canadian news not being intermediated by Google or or Meta. The problem is the government, in this case, completely started with the wrong concept. I mean, the linking where Google acts as intermediary between the person who's looking for news and the newsmaker is uh, mostly beneficial, both for the person who's looking for, like, let's say you were looking for a story on Prairie Fires, and you, again, you get a link with the Toronto Toronto Star, let's say, or Calgary newspaper or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then when you're on that newspaper's website, you usually hit a paywall. You get to listen to three or four lines, and then if you want more, you have to subscribe or you have to pay. Or if the newspaper doesn't want to, they can let you have free ex- uh, free access to all the news. But that's pretty rare. But both persons benefit. The newspapers are being found by people who are looking for news, and and get the potential of exposure and getting new customers, and the customers get get access to the news. Now, to say that Google or Meta are stealing the news from Canadian newsmakers is just rubbish. That's not what they are. They are connecting. And to put a fee on it and say, you have to negotiate that fee between the newsmakers and the intermediaries as to what is the value of this linking and how much should you be sharing. Sharing what? Right. That, that the real value is the data, the data that uh, Google or Meta obtains. And that, together with all other Meta, that's it, put it together and identify people and their interests. And then they sell it to advertisers for targeted invert advertising. And this advertising is very powerful and so powerful that basically when you nowadays look at a newspaper, you don't see any advertisings anymore except obituaries. Everything else is online nowadays. And of course, the newspapers are suffering badly from it, from having their, their source of income being taken over by others. Now the question is how to remedy it. Both Google and Meta are prepared to pay and to share, but they don't say don't get me into a system whereby I'm forced to negotiate the value of links because I don't know what it's worth, I don't know how to do it, and by the way, if you do it, everybody else will try to do that too, and you're basically putting a fee on linking, which is completely against the whole idea of the internet which is you can freely link with anybody and exchange news and or or information or whatever it is and what i'm suggested is you know 
if they are willing to pay, and they have said many times now, they're willing to pay into a fund, and you can then determine, you being the government, how to distribute that fund, uh, why not pick them up on that idea? Why not get, notwithstanding that the act has passed, it's not been, it's received royal assent, but it has not been proclaimed to be the law. And you don't have to do that. You can just do what uh, what uh, they have done in other cases, like ask the CRTC to get the industry to set up a, a, a neutral uh, corporation into which which will set operate a fund and then have both Google and Meta pay a certain amount into to the fund and that of course has to be negotiated and the proceeds of the fund are then being distributed to anybody who employs journalists and you have to determine you know how much you get per journalist and there will also be definitional problems of what's a journalist but it's a perfectly workable system and something that could be done and I don't understand why the government insists on saying, no, no, we want to see you negotiate and want you, you will be forced to negotiate and if not, etc. And of course, the answer of Meta and, and Google is, well, we won't negotiate, we'll just withdraw from the news market. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then everybody loses. So uh, it's a really strange situation where solution is obvious. The the news intermediaries like Meta and Google have admitted they are willing to pay into the fund, but the government is not willing to pick up that idea. Well, that's what it sounds like. I I think part of the concern, as you say, these companies seem willing to to do something. They're willing to pay something. The, one of the issues they, they brought up with the, uh, you know, the original Online News Act was they had no idea what kind of amounts. There was no upper limit to those amounts, right? So there was all of that uncertainty that they had no idea what this was going to cost them. Exactly that. They also had no idea is who they negotiate with because it can be either individual newsmakers or they can group themselves and, and form consortia. And as I say, what are you negotiating about? The Act doesn't even say that. The Act just says you shall negotiate, but not about what. And as I say, the the idea is not the linking. The idea is the value of the data that you obtain. And that's really... And of course, some of the data comes from the newsmakers. So for Google and and Meta to say, fine, we'll pay. Tell me what what the amount is. I'll put it in my budget. Basically, that's the cost of doing business. That I, whatever it is, five or ten percent, has to be of my Canadian revenue has to pay in that fund. They can live with that, but they can't live with this idea of that they endlessly have to negotiate with whoever comes forward and wants to negotiate them about something they don't know what it really is, and they have no idea what the extent is to which they will be held liable. Because if they cannot agree, there will be binding arbitration. And nobody knows what the arbitration will be about and what the amount will be. So this fund that exists then, or, or would exist under this plan, yeah. uh, so how how might those resources be distributed? How do we make a determination as to you know who would be eligible and that sort of thing? Well, you could put, we already have a definition of journalist in the Act. There are also other acts which define the journalist. And you can say, well, we'll let's say if, if the contribution was like right now the uh, broadcast distribution undertakings like uh, 
Shaw and Rogers and Bell pay 5% of their revenue into a fund called the CMF, which is a new suit uh, to make Canadian movies. You could say here, you have to pay, let's say, for argument's sake, 5% into this fund. This fund will be administered by a neutral body, and they will pay to every news person who qualifies, and the, the, what is a news person is definite, uh, is, can be def is defined under the Act, so much per journalist, i.e. for every journalist that you employ, we pay, will, uh, you will get a subsidy of uh, whatever amount it is, $500, $200 a month, I don't know. It depends on what, what the total is and how many people apply. But the formula to develop is relatively simple as to A, how much they have to pay, and B, how much you distribute. Then it will be determined how many qualifying journalists are there. And again, that's not, it's not, not an infinite number. And then you have the result that you want, that the, uh, the newsmakers can afford the journalists, which they can't afford right now because they don't have any regular income. If they have that regular income, Per, per employed journalist, it makes it, their life completely different. They have a steady stream of income, which then can be used now to produce news. Right, and there is a real challenge here that we need to address. Like your point that the government came up with the wrong solution. There was at least a clearly identified problem that, that we're trying to address. They just went about it the wrong way. Exactly. I mean, nobody argues about the problem. The problem is there. The, the source of income for newsmakers has gone. It has gone there. And clearly, Google should not keep it all or matter. They have to share it. The question is how, how much and by what mechanism. And uh, they have borrowed this concept from the Australian, but they have never said what actually happened in Australia, namely that the act was passed but under the Act, the companies have to be named. And no company has ever been named because the companies made uh, their own private deal with, uh, with Google and Meta. Nobody knows what the, Google, uh, go, what the deal is and how much they're paying. Well, hopefully something can be salvaged here. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Conrad Van Fickenstein, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. All, All right. the best. Take care, sir. That's uh, Conrad Van Fickenstein, former chair of the CRTC, is also a senior fellow with the C.D. Howe Institute, uh, co-authored a paper recently for the McDonald laurier Institute, kind of expanding on this uh, idea of a different approach here that, that, yes, addresses the problem that the government was trying to address in the first place, but does so in a much different way. And I think it's pretty clear already, as it stands, that the government approach here has failed. So, yeah, we got to try something different. But I don't know if the government's willing to acknowledge that, and maybe we're too far down the path. Maybe these companies just don't want to come back to the table uh, with this government. We'll see. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.